Well, grab your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel. Um, I have a PowerPoint, but I just didn't give it to Dawn, so um, uh, it must be uh, like government work. You know, I did it, I just can't prove it. Um, so, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, pick up right where we left off last week with uh, what we're seeing in chapter 12 is really a great example of what does repentance look like. Uh, it's, it's expressed in chapter 51 of Psalms. Uh, we're Psalm 51, they're not chapters, but uh, here we're seeing the unfolding of, of what does repentance really look like. And last week uh, we saw the beginning of that. So if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's word, we'll read verses 7 to 15. The writer of 2 Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Nathan said to David, verse 7, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to him, The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask, as always, you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that we would be transformed by the gospel as revealed through your word. Lord, this is your work, and I ask that you would be so kind to do it. Lord, may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. I'm willing to bet, probably when you were a teenager, uh, you got caught doing something. And your parents confronted you on it. And it was at that moment you realized that maybe they could read your mind. Maybe the first time you ever thought that. But they, were, they, they sort of really were, were on to you. You were sitting there listening to them lecture at you about why did you do this? You know you shouldn't have done that, whatever the case might be. And then they, 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 you will tell them, Mom, Dad, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. Something like that. And they respond with, are you sorry that what you did was wrong? Or are you sorry you got caught? That is the moment you think... Maybe mom and dad can read my mind. Because the truth be told, you couldn't care less about what it is you did. What's frustrating is you got caught doing it. I suspect this is a universal experience. Our only fear isn't uh, that, that what we're doing might be considered wrong, but that we might get caught doing it. We are rarely sorry for doing that wrong. We're just frustrated that we didn't outgain the system. Years ago, when David Frost, a, a British journalist, TV personality, sat down with the former president of the United States, Richard Nixon, the goal was to get Nixon to confess his guilt in Watergate. 
People tune in from around the world to hear Nixon say, I am guilty and I am sorry, only to discover Nixon would not do any of that. Viewers were ultimately disappointed in the end. What bothered Nixon was not the deed of Watergate, but its exposure and the cutting of his presidency to a premature end. Now imagine you are the sovereign king over the nation of Israel and you are accused by not just the prophet but soon to be the the whole country. And they'll get on Twitter and complain about it, no doubt. And you have essentially broken half of the Ten Commandments, literally. He did, after all, covet another man's wife. He stole that wife for himself. He committed adultery with her. He deceived Uriah and then ordered an innocent man's death in battle. You talk about a scandal. And so this chapter, as we see, it continues this this exploration of, of, of David's repentance. And as we said last week, we are at the beginning of what is the downward spiral of David. So far from that day that he first met Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, things have just been going up and up and up. And now because of his sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah, we'll begin a series of unfortunate events that will be the downfall of David. As we said with Solomon, David started well. He just did not finish well. But here in chapter 12, we see both the ugliness and the beauty of repentance. What we discover is that repentance is more than a mere apology. It is a broken heart mended by God. It begins with the confrontation we saw last week. And as we see this week, it will move to condemnation and, um, and conviction. Let's start with condemnation in verses 7 to 12. Nathan's strategy is to get David to condemn himself, right? You remember we saw this last week with the parable. There was a man and a rich man and a young and, and, and a poor man. The rich man took the poor man's lamb. David's response is one of rage, right? How dare he do this sort of thing? In fact, he calls on the rich man to be executed, to restore what has been stolen and then to be executed by the state. And it is this point we get the ultimate condemnation from Nathan there begin verse 7, you are that man. You're the man in the parable who is taken from your brother. You have everything you could ever want, and yet it wasn't enough for you. Yet you took it for yourself, and now you have condemned yourself. So here, Nathan is pointing the finger at his sovereign king. Now, this is the hard part of love, isn't it? As we said last week, confrontation produces conviction when the one who bears the truth does so with love. And this is the most courageous moment in the life of Nathan. David could have, could order that Nathan be executed himself. And what follows then is the condemnation of David from Nathan. Notice what this condemnation includes here. It begins with accountability in verses 7 and 8. 7 and 8. He says, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. 
Now, it's very clear, the Bible is clear in this, that all sin is equally wicked and must be condemned as it, as it robs us of the glory of God and the beauty of God in our lives and the lives of others. It is equally true that those in positions of influence, power, and whatnot are held to a higher standard. James writes in chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, that is, teachers in the church, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. What, what James is not saying is that when a teacher of the church sins, his sins is like of a higher degree than someone who does not teach. It is to say that given the position of leadership, there is a higher standard applied to that. Paul will say the same thing with deacons and elders, right? That, that you read the list in uh, 1 Timothy and Titus, you'll find there's nothing surprising in that list. Be kind, be loving, and treat your spouse with love and respect. And don't cheat on them, right? That's sort of the expectation we have across the board. However, he has to be very clear with elders and deacons because they are held to a standard. And with that standard comes honor and respect and authority. And, we'll, and, and, and not meeting these standards will bring great shame upon the gospel and upon the kingdom of God. Now, we have all noticed in our country a continued decline of American institutions and the American respect for authority. I'm sure you've noticed this from parental authority to civil authority to the role of the family, various institutions like government, the church, and the university. Um, these are all under assault. Think about it. If, if, someone, uh, if you were to go up to someone and say, uh, this must change because the church says so, you think anyone's going to care about that in our given culture? Many in the church won't care. Why? Well, I'll just leave the church. Go find another one, right? We've lost a respect of the authority uh, across the board of all of our institutions. Now, we could rightly blame the cultural mood of postmodernism where there is no ultimate authority but the self, and that would be true. At the same time, we cannot deny the failure among leaders is a significant and serious problem when it comes to our institutions. How many more scandals of, of ministry leaders, elders, deacons, and whatnot is it going to take before we realize this very point? We can blame the cultural mood. At the same time, we need to look at our own selves and realize we've brought a mess upon ourselves. And this is true across the board. David is in a position of power and authority given to him by God, and yet he has squandered it. David did not need another love interest. Unlike everyone else in his kingdom, David had multiple wives. And yet it wasn't enough. He still had to take a look. He still had to take for himself. He still had to lie. He still had to kill. And Nathan here says, you, among everyone else, must be held accountable. Not, not only is there accountability, there is also guilt. Notice what it says in verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You allied with your enemy to kill a man. All the while, or just so, you can have for yourself 
what is his. You are guilty. There can be no restoration, which is the ultimate goal of repentance, apart from the realization of guilt. Sin produces guilt and shame. And either this guilt and shame will produce repentance or it will produce rage or even uh, like a melancholy sort of feeling. Nathan makes it clear what David did and the guilt he now suffers from. He took another man's wife. He took an innocent man's life. He is guilty. And there is no room here for David to say, well, I know what I did was wrong, but you should meet my mother. I know what I did was wrong, but, but I, just, I, 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 I just had a difficult upbringing or I have a stressful job or my wife wasn't meeting my needs or if only you knew what it was like to be me or, or, or my, my, my anxiety medicines weren't working and the doctor wasn't helping me and I was in a stressful situation and didn't know anyone was going to find out and I was told it was okay and I had this permission. There's no excuses here. You are Guilty. And David must own that guilt. Now, this is language we struggle with as Americans. We don't have a problem with guilt. We have a problem with that I might be guilty. Everyone else could be guilty. And it could be their fault, but but not me. Or what we will do is we associate guilt with negative emotions like distress or even depression. Now, to be clear... Guilt and shame apart from a savior that heals and restores will produce feelings of distress and depression. That's the problem with religion. That's the problem with secularism, which is nothing less than a religion without a savior. Because if all you're given is guilt and shame and to be canceled and to be threatened with this or that, you're going to feel guilty. You're going to feel shameful, but there's no savior to liberate you from it. There's no savior to satisfy the guilt and shame. This is why we must have a savior. But you will not look for a savior until you come to the realization you must be saved. We should read Nathan's words in light of the cross. If David does not repent, more women will be victimized. More men will suffer. Thus, repentance and only by repentance will lives be saved and his life be for the better. Thirdly, we see judgment in verses 10 and 11. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. The Lord threatens judgment. One of the ways he does it here is by perpetual suffering. In essence, David demonstrates, as Jesus would put it, those who live by the sword dies by the sword. You killed a man, you're going to have people in your family die. You took a wife, you're going to have your wives taken. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. It's interesting, isn't it? That if, 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 I think we, we mentioned this last week, that if you keep reading in, in, in the story of David, as, as Lord willing, we will do, four of David's 
sons will die. Remember that, that he said that the imaginary man in the parable must pay four times what he took. David is going to end up paying four times what he took. He took one man's wife. He's going to, four of his sons are going to end up dying. Bathsheba, he Bathsheba's child here later we'll see in a few weeks. Uh, actually next week, Lord willing. Ammon in chapter 13, Absalom in chapter 18, and Adonijah in 1 Kings chapter 2 who will be executed. I've told a story before. Years ago, I read a, a, the, a, uh, a historical survey of the Hatfield-McCoy's feud, which I find just to be a fascinating feud. There are feuds all over Kentucky at that time. I won't, I won't annoy you with more history than that. But I remember whenever I, I finished the book, right? I mean, it was, it was a really well-written book. fascinating story. I'm sure we all know it well. And some of you are from Eastern Kentucky, and, and it shows. And, and I remember at the end, I thought, you know what? I think Jesus was right. Those who live by the Winchester die by the Winchester, right? That's true whether we're talking about the Hatfield McCoys. It's, it's true whenever we talk about our nation. Those who live by the mob violence will die by the mob violence or the nation that does. The same is true for all sin. Unrepentant sin will produce its own judgment and consequences and it will not stop until the root sins are addressed. Right now, you probably have conflict in your family, in your marriage, in your workplace, and all you're doing is you're trying to put all the load of the conflict on the other person. And what you'll find is the conflict seems to get worse. Can I tell you why? Because you are not dealing with the root causes of that conflict. And what you're, what you're seeing is the judgment, the consequences of unrepentant sin. Sin requires judgment. We all agree with this. What we don't agree with is whether or not I should be subject of that judgment. You should be because you voted for the other guy. But every time something happens that the culture perceives as wicked, judgment is a natural response. We'll become keyboard warriors and bash whoever may disagree with us on Facebook or Tic Tac. Or we will go to the streets and light something on fire because justice somehow. But once again, we are quick to demand judgment for others and not for ourselves. God is not so as biased as we are. Unless we repent, there will be judgments. Notice finally exposure in verse 12. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. God warns that this private sin will be made public. We talked about this some last week, so I don't want to belabor the point. And this is the part we said last week that scares us the most. It's not that we feel sorry for what we did. We regret that we got caught. And here David gets caught and is made public. But as we saw last time, either in this life or the next, our sin will be exposed. Now, it will be exposed in the open or it will be exposed upon the shoulders of Christ crucified upon the cross. Where do you want your sins to be laid? Now, for the modern reader, this, this can all be difficult to read. Yet again, our hypocrisy is before us. We Americans, perhaps our favorite sport is to condemn others. I want you to think about what is 90% of reality TV, or really just TV in general. Uh, it's, 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 it's the opportunity to criticize, right? Uh, who is the best singer? I think it's Bob. No, I think it's Jill. You're wrong. You don't know anything about music. What do you know about music? I know that Jill's better than Bob, right? I'm going to call and vote. Do you still call or is that online? I, I, I don't know. Then there's the dating shows, which I recommend you avoid. Um, I just think that 
So you can do better than him. That's the thought, right? You know, we, we watch these shows and we, we love being critical. He's a terrible coach, right? He don't know how to run an offense. Like, and, and, and you, you can, right? You know, like, like, like I love football. You don't want me to run a team. But when it comes to personal accountability, suddenly we are silenced. Do you not agree that David's action should not be ignored? Are you any different than David here? So repentance requires confrontation. And with that comes condemnation of our sin. But notice where the narrative turns in verses 13 and 15. That is the conviction of our sin. When confronted with our sin, as Nathan does to David, we have three options to respond. The first, we can respond with rage. This is our preferred option. Our natural response to confrontation and condemnation is not conviction, but offense. Remember what we saw in in Proverbs, that the wise man responds to criticism, confrontation with humility and seeks to be honest with himself. The fool is one who simply responds with anger and rage. And because we live in an emotion-driven society, we typically respond to confrontation and condemnation with rejection and rage. Who do you think you are? No, you can't talk to me like that. I'm going to leave. I'm going to bash you. I'm going to turn you into human resources. You'll never work in a town like this again. We respond with anger. If you don't believe me, try it. You can, you can probably start with your spouse. Try that, right? Let alone going to a college campus or co-worker or a boss or your neighbor. Just try it. Knock on your neighbor's door and say, you know what? I really, I'm hearing you and your spouse screaming through the walls. And I think we really should, should deal with this. Let's see how humble they respond to your confrontation. Most of us, when it comes to con- our, our condemnation and we respond with rage. If we don't respond with rage, often we respond with regrets. Often, guilt produces regret and nothing else, and that is an inadequate response. Here, the Bible is helpful in that it differentiates between worldly sorrow and gospel sorrow. Worldly sorrow does not produce repentance. Therefore, it does not produce restoration or salvation. Worldly sorrow is at its core self-centered. It focuses more on personal frustration and pain rather than the offense and dishonor committed against God and others. Think about how you respond to when you know you're in the wrong. Rarely do we think about, I've offended a holy and righteous God, and because I offended him, I have wounded and I have hurt other people. Usually, we make it about the self. Well, you know, I just had a rough day. The boss called me in. I didn't like his attitude. And, and we own a cat. How frustrating is that, right? We go out of our way to excuse our behavior so that our sin is about how righteous we are. That's worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow regrets exposure of sin, not the sin itself. Because we would do the same thing if no one found out. Worldly sorrow draws us towards defensiveness and personal justification. Godly sorrow, gospel sorrow, makes no excuses for our sins. How many times have we heard a public apology that starts out with, what I've done is wrong, but? That's not repentance. Worldly sorrow produces humiliation. 
but it will not produce humility. Worldly sorrow draws our attention to what a great sinner we are, whereas godly sorrow will draw our attention to what a great Savior Jesus is. Regret is not an adequate response to conviction. We should thirdly respond with repentance. And this is David's response. And if we had time, we would look at Psalm 51, and I would encourage you to do that this week. But in order to see what repentance is, a, a, a Christianese word we use all the time, rarely defined, let's explore briefly what that is. And I'll find it helpful, excuse me, that when talking about what something is, it may be helpful to start with what something is not. Repentance is not, first of all, a formula. It's more than walking an aisle, giving a testimony, or signing a card. It is true that repentance is evidenced by outward actions, but it is not merely equal to that. Of course I repented. I went to church. Of course I repented. I did what the preacher told me to do, right? It's just, it's just an, 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 a formula I have to follow, a prayer I have to say. Repentance is more than that. Repentance is not merely emotional regrets. It's more than mere sorrow and regret. As we've seen, worldly sorrow may appear genuine, but it is not true repentance. Emotions may lead to repentance, but mere emotion is not repentance. I grew up going to youth camp every year. Every year, half of us got saved and felt sorry for something every year. And next year, we were back, and it's the same thing over again. There was a band I used to listen to. Uh, no one here, but maybe one or two people would know who they are. Um, they had a line that said, youth camp junkies can get enough to make the buzz laugh last. I love that, right? Because I was guilty of that. Well, I got to go to youth camp. Got to get my spiritual juice and hopefully it'll last me an extra week this year. But we do that all the time. If I feel sorrow, if I feel bad, it must be true repentance. And how many of us grew up in churches where the invitation was longer than the sermon because you have to stir the emotions to get people to respond? And then you wonder, well, how come I've never seen fruits of repentance? I mean, if I want you to cry, I'll just put on Lassie, the last scene of Lassie, and I'll get you to cry. That doesn't mean it's repentance. Thirdly, repentance is more than confession. Merely sharing one's story in brokenness, though beneficial, is inadequate. This might be emotional catharsis. It may feel redemptive, but it is not repentance. Confession is part of repentance. It is not the sum total of it. Finally, getting religious is not repentance. It is possible to share in communion, join a committee, and sing loud in the church apart from addressing sin and responding with gospel repentance. So what is repentance? Repentance is a choice to submit oneself to God, ceasing to sin entirely, live for His glory alone, while leaning on our hope in Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and risen from the grave. This good news is proclaimed to David. Did you see it? 
I hope it just leapt off the page for you when you read it earlier. Look at it there in verse 13. Now notice again, he has gone through accountability and guilt and judgment and exposure. He has, con- he has, con- he has confronted him. He has condemned him. But now David feels convicted by the work of the Spirit in his heart. And this is the hope that Nathan has for him. Notice you cannot get this hope. You cannot get this news without everything else coming before it, right? You have to know you need to be saved before there can be salvation. You have to know you are dirty before you can be cleansed. Here it is in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You see the repentance? What he isn't saying is, well, sure, Nathan, of course I did. But you don't, you don't understand. I wanted to go out to battle. My generals told me I couldn't go. And my feelings got hurt. And sometimes when my feelings get hurt, I just, I just do things I regret. No big deal. Yeah, Uriah, that's sad. But he was a Gentile. No one cares. I took Bathsheba in. Aren't I a good person? It's not what he says. He says, I have sinned against God. Now, what about Bathsheba? She's been sinned against. What about Uriah? He's kind of been sinned against. What about his generals, his army, his nation? Everyone has been sinned against against David. But he starts with the truth. I have sinned without excuse, without justification against my creator, against my Lord, against my God. I am guilty. That's the language of conviction. But then notice where it goes from there. Nathan said to David, The Lord, who is doing all these things I just shared before, He has also put away your sin. Why? Is it because He doesn't deserve it? He deserves by His own mouth to be executed. The Lord has put away your sin. The older I get and the more crazy this world gets, the more I realize what it is that we long for the most is to be cleansed. We all know we're guilty. We all know we're dirty. We all know, we we, we know that feeling of shame and fear and everything that comes with it. What we want more than anything is to be cleansed, to be restored. And here Nathan shows it to us. You are guilty, but there is one who is blameless, who offers himself upon the cross for you. So that your sins are laid on His shoulders. So that when God sees us, He sees us not as we truly are, but as Christ really is. But you can't get the cleansing apart from the repentance and faith. Story goes that a pastor was walking with a soap manufacturer. They were walking together down the street in a large city and the soap manufacturer just couldn't believe what he was seeing. He says, preacher, that gospel you preach hasn't done much good, has it? Look around us. There is still wickedness in the world and a lot of people in the world too. A lot of good that gospel is doing for us, huh? Pastor made no reply until a few blocks down the road they walked past a little child who was dirty Filthy, making mud pies in the gutter. Seizing the opportunity, the pastor says, I see that that soap you make hasn't done the world a lot of good, has it? Look, 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 despite all of that, there is so much dirtiness in the world and so many dirty people around. Well, the manufacturer was a bit offended by the suggestion. 
Well, you know, soap, he says, is only good when you apply it. Ah, said the pastor. So is the gospel. I don't know where you are this morning, but what I do know is there, there, perhaps you need some conviction and condemnation in your life to address the reality of sin. May you come in repentance. May you see the cleansing work of the blood of Jesus. So maybe you're here, you've never embraced Christ. I beg of you, do not leave here until you find him and come to him. But maybe you're here, You've walked the aisle, you've gotten wet, you've, you've joined the church, you signed the card, you've said the formulas, you've done everything you were told to do, and yet you look at your life and you realize, boy, David was bad, but I'm far worse than he is. So too, I beg of you today, would you not come in this time of invitation and, and come in true repentance? Because the gospel only works when it is truly applied. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.